for me, it started out small. I lived in a town here in South Carolina that had a large training base. And at that time, most of those guys were being shipped off to Vietnam. I had some cannabis connections and found that sometimes on the weekends when we'd be at the local music club, the guys from the base would be hanging around and they would ask me if I knew where they could find the plant, so to speak. So one thing led to another and I said, geez, yeah, I can help you. And then pretty soon it became a regular kind of thing on the weekends, especially at the end of the month, because back in the early seventies, the army paid once a month. The more that I was around cannabis, then the more customers I had that kind of blossomed from there. It was basically a perfect storm as well, because there was only the black market. There was nothing legal about cannabis whatsoever. Thus began a 14-year journey, acquiring, dispensing, packaging, transportating, you, know, you name it, it was everything all in one. We were everything. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, and I am excited to have another guest telling their story, Barry Foy with Gentlemen Smugglers. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. We were just discussing, if you cannot tell listeners from your accent, you have a Southern accent. You're based in South Carolina. I'm sure people who are paying attention to cannabis in the industry to some extent are familiar with your story but maybe are not familiar with you specifically or some of the aspects of your story, you know, just from reading your bio, you know, talking about specifically Operation Jackpot, which was the opening act in Reagan's War on Drugs. That's obviously a monumental shift for cannabis that kind of set the stage. We were just reflecting, I think, as an industry, right? It's, it's been come up. Should we reschedule? Is, is rescheduling going to come? And you're looking at the timeline of how long cannabis has been on the Controlled Substances Act. And it's been over 40 years. And so that helps me deduct that you've been really a part of this story since even before that time frame. So I'll let you kind of jump in and share what is your brand now, but obviously how long you've been in the industry and to what extent you were operating in cannabis. Oh, that's a big, broad question because it covers about 50 years and I don't want to give away my age particularly, but I'm no, just kidding. About 50 years that I've been in and out of the cannabis business from like maybe the 70, 71, something like that would be when I began my involvement with cannabis. And here we have evolved to today. And it's come pretty much for full circle. You're back in the game. That's right. Back in the game. Much different. Yes. Obviously, the black market is no no regulations. Well, maybe uh, let's start there too. What made you get into the black market? What made you get into cannabis? And obviously, I'd rather hear it from your perspective than telling your story, but you have operated one of the largest smuggling, hence your name, Gentlemen Smugglers, cannabis operations. You had a stint in prison. Obviously, you're out now, and now you are wanting to re-enter on the regulated side. So maybe without, you know, getting into all the details of those years in between and, and, and disclosing your full age, right? Why cannabis? What was the opportunity back then? What was the landscape like when you were, were getting in and deciding, yeah, let's smuggle? Because some of the countries that you were moving product from, I mean, it, it's truly remarkable how you had a operation that size. Well, you know, for me, it started out small. I lived in a town here in South Carolina that had a large training base, and it still is, for soldiers in the Army. And at that time, most of those guys were being shipped off to Vietnam. And I was at the University of South Carolina, and I had some 
cannabis connections and found that sometimes on the weekends when we'd be at the local music club, the guys from the, the base would be hanging around and they would ask me if I knew where they could, you know, find the plant, so to speak. And these guys were from different parts of the country, obviously, if it's they're in the army and they're being trained, they're from California, Chicago, New York, Puerto Rico, a lot of different locations that, and they had experienced cannabis and were in a town they weren't familiar with. So one thing led to another and I said, geez, yeah, I can help you. And then pretty soon it became a regular kind of thing on the weekends, especially the end of the month, because back in the early seventies, and they may still do this today, the army paid once a month. So on that, that once a month, they were payday. their payday. And so it's also st- your payday. My payday as well. So that's kind of how it started in a small environment. And then it blossomed because I felt like it was something I could move forward. And the more that I was around cannabis, then the more customers I had, it just, it kind of blossomed from there. And it was basically a perfect storm as well, because there was only the black market. Right. There was nothing legal about cannabis whatsoever. And so thus began a 14 year journey and acquiring, dispensing, packaging, transportating, you know, you name it was everything all in one. We were everything like today. You have different states have different licenses for what you want to do. If you want to distribute it, do you want to package Do you want to grow? So we did all those things under one umbrella for a long time and it just evolved over time that was uh, almost like the train was not stopping that as time went on into the later in the 70s 80s and so forth where we are today the number of people that used cannabis increased as well it became more part of the culture it was in our music and our movies it was occasionally on TV comedians talked about it and it helped us get to where we're at today. And in a sense, it, it was meant to happen. That's the way I look back on it now that maybe I was put here to, to promote the plant in some twisted way because the government (laughs) didn't think that I was. And so they put me in prison for 11 years. Once they finally, finally ran me down. And so it, it's been a quite a journey and I love where I'm at today with gentlemen smugglers. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's rewarding to know that people recognize legacy and they recognize how we got to the situation we're in today with what are we now 25 or 30 states that are, that are legal, uh, in one form or another. Right. Uh, and and it, it makes me feel good. And we launched our brand about a year ago in Massachusetts. And we chose Massachusetts for several reasons. And, you know, I can elaborate on that as well. But I love the folks in Massachusetts. They've been very friendly to me. And to go back to what I was speaking about a second ago was people recognizing how we got to where we are today. And the folks in Massachusetts really have their heads wrapped around how we got to this point that we didn't get there with a snap of the finger. It's been a long, hard process and journey and it continues to be. And so I'm trying to do what I can do as somewhat of a spokesman, I guess you would say to, to, to keep the, keep the train moving. And so that one day we're all free to do what we choose to do when it comes to the plant. And that's of my, um, goal to see it one day that we're, you know, we're, we're all free to choose. And that's one reason that I, I support. So does obviously the gentleman smugglers, the last prisoner project in this whole process that nobody should be locked up. If I had the key, I've said before, if I had the key, I'd go around and let everybody out, but that's not going to happen. So it's just stay in the course, supporting the people who are involved like yourself and other people in the cannabis world to bring this whole crazy, restrictive 
thing that we've been under through the government, by the government to an end. And so I think we're on our way, but the work still has to be done. And that that's kind of the gentleman smugglers we knew back in the 70s and 80s. Not near as much as we know today from a research and a medical standpoint, but we knew that from the feedback, people love cannabis. Maybe they didn't know exactly why or what the, all the reasons we have today. Well, I have a headache. Well, I've got a strain for you. Or my back's hurting. Oh, I've got something for you. You know, you can hear the bud tenders now talking about it. Right. And thank you to all the bud tenders out there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, people knew even, well, back before the written, before we had even um, biblical times, ancient, ancient. Tens of thousands of years, probably people have been using the plant for different reasons. And I think that finally we're at a point today that we're finding out just how valuable it is. And people have always known that it made them feel good and maybe helped with other ailments as well. So it's finally coming around now from a research standpoint that how valuable the plant is medicinally. That's absolutely so, true. You have a yes. very remarkable story, and I appreciate you sharing your testimony. I can't imagine being imprisoned. Obviously, that's more, I don't want to say common than not, especially at the size the industry is now, but it's obviously very criminalized still, especially in states like mine. I'm sure in states like your home state, South Carolina. You were just expressing, though, why people loved cannabis, but maybe they didn't fully understand or have the choice. I'm really curious. I know, you know, obviously a little bit about the legacy market. I've certainly purchased through the legacy market here in Texas. I usually joke and refer to it as, you know, I, I would be going to my dealer and I would like to buy, you know, an eighth. I wouldn't have choice. It was, do you have a weed? I need weed here is cash, give me weed. There was no, here's 10 milligram watermelon gummies. Here's a, you know, Jack Herrera strain versus a Blue Dream strain. So I want to talk a little bit about, I don't know if marketing is the fair term to use from a legacy perspective back then, but presently today to bring the legacy, you know, kind of full circle and maybe you can, you know, add some commentary to this especially still being in Texas, there is still an illicit legacy market. They are very sophisticated. They come in beautiful packaging. It almost looks like it should be sold at a dispensary, but it is not. I do have choice now to some extent when I'm purchasing through those avenues, or I shouldn't say when, I should say if the occasion happens, right, or whatever, this, the legal, this is not, you know, admissible in court, right? But what was it like? Were you just moving anything that was cannabis or were you very tuned into certain strains certain quality was there a certain country that grew better that you became more accustomed to sourcing from what was like that choice like in those early years and maybe did it evolve over time i'm just trying to get a pulse on what consumers what your customers had access to and then once we get through that maybe we can contrast that with you know Obviously, you're operating in the regulated side now, but the marketing of cannabis, because again, you highlighted it. People like cannabis, they want it. And if they don't have choice, they'll just take anything you give them. But, you know, was there choice back then? And how did you navigate that, keep your customers happy, source the good shit, so to speak? So I'm curious. That's a good question. And it's easy to answer because there weren't many choices. Like when I first started out smuggling, it was down to Jamaica. Jamaicans generally grow a sativa-oriented style plant. Lamb's bread would be the way it would be described in the 70s. What is lamb's bread? Well, it's a sativa or it's a strain, but I don't think back then when the 70s and 80s, they referred to it as anything, but this is lamb's bread. It wasn't like, oh, this is our strain, lamb's bread. This is uh. bread. The was strain was not a word that was mentioned. I didn't, the strain didn't come in until the 90s. 
from my education. So there was only one. And what we generally did, generally tried to do was go pick out the best of what was available. Look at, you know, as much as we could look at. Take Colombia, for instance. It was Santa Marta gold. Today, they call it Colombian gold. And you can still find that occasionally. You can find that strain. But it was just called Colombian gold or Santa Marta gold because that's the area in the region that it came from in Colombia. So there wasn't any choices. Hash from Lebanon was just green hash from Lebanon. It didn't have a name other than hash. That's crazy. And then, you all, of course, you had Mexican, Panama red, that type of thing, but very little choice. Today, of course, has exploded and there's well over a thousand strains, uh, maybe even more than that. Uh, it, it seems like there's a new eight or 10 a day, uh, which is great. It gives everybody a choice. And the part about today, and to touch a little bit on what you were talking about, if you go to your local dealer and they're all packaged real pretty and, and seems to be like they're legit. When you do buy in a legit market, it's been tested. It's been certified, so to speak. And I think that's an improvement because, you know, who wants to, you know, intake something that's untested or unproven? And we know what kind of environment we live in today. So the, the, the more testing, the better. And I think that's one of the big differences today. What we mostly bought from Jamaica and Columbia was grown in the mountains fairly organically. I would, I would seem to think I never tested any, obviously. So we were fortunate in that sense that what we had to offer was really grown by farmers that lived in the mountains. And so it was clean for the most part. They didn't have access to fertilizers and pesticides and other things that would, you know, pollute the, the plant. And so we really had a, a very, very good product. And because of the nature of smuggling, that's how we got product in those days versus today. You know, it's, it's everywhere. Everybody's got a friend that private knows. jet. Yeah. And you take a trip to Colorado, take the bus and go around to all the dispensaries and bring it back wherever you're going. So that doesn't seem to be a problem today uh, to acquire uh, legitimately, no matter how you go about doing it. So smuggling is still going on, but nothing like it was in the day, obviously, because that's the only way we had. California wasn't growing. Um, Colorado, there weren't really any indoor grows until sometime in the later in the 80s and early 90s. So we were the pioneers, that's for sure. And I'm just happy it's come around to where we're at today and I can continue on the business that I was in when it was in the black market. So it's a lot of fun and it's a, it's a challenge, but we can get into that as well. What it takes to be in a regulated market. Yeah. You certainly have a positive attitude. I think I, it's hard, you know, obviously to walk in someone else's shoes unless you're physically going through something very similar. Right. So I can only empathize so much with what you went through. And I have to also commend to some extent, you certainly probably did help pave the way for this industry by introducing, you know, these products into a marketplace and weathering the storm. And I've, I have like a quick question that just came to mind, just because I'm curious. Do you happen to have any of that original weed you were moving anywhere that you could, you know, in a closet, in a bag that you could test just to see maybe what was in it? I'm sure the government maybe confiscated as much as they could from you, but I don't think there's anything left at this point. I mean, that strain is available at some of the events I see people selling. I just mean from that original, like anything from your source, I like could be curious. I would have to without government intervention to be, hey, I would just be curious to test this. This was, you know, Colombian gold that I was smuggling in the 80s. And here it is 2023. We're testing it. And, you know, aha, there's no aspergillus, right? Or no mold or no. Yes, I I, I, I obviously I don't have any. Uh, but, you know, there are those strains that are yeah. out today. Lamb spread you can find in dispensaries and the Colombian gold you can find as well occasionally. Uh, it's not on every menu by, by any stretch, but 
they're still around and I can't tell you where they're coming from today. It probably gone. Everything's grown here today, but you know, I, I do think that we're in a better situation as far as testing goes. And, but I feel confident and I never heard one complaint from back in the day. <laughs> it was That's usually a good point to bring up. Yeah. What was the customer service experience like? Very satisfied. So satisfied that my phone would ring and like, when are we going again? Uh, when are you going to have, you know, it's like there was never enough of the, of the plant, of the supply. There was always a need. And so it, it put a certain amount of, believe it or not, mm -hmm. pressure to, to keep mm -hmm. going and to keep doing, to be involved in this, even though one part of you, of me would say, oh, we got to stop. You know, we're, we're ahead of the game sure. right now. And what do we do? Uh, no, there's no stopping now. So. I think that I wonder back sometimes if I would have ever gotten out of it, if they, the, the feds hadn't finally decided that they'd had enough, they've heard too much. We were, we had garnered a reputation and we were very hard to pin down and we basically knew more than they did. They like to think they could spy on us while we were spying on them too. What uh, a fun and, life. Uh, yes. So hopefully, um, one day here soon. Um, I may get involved in bringing back the Colombian gold and having it as one of our strains for gentlemen smugglers. I've been looking into that. Uh, I don't particularly grow myself and I don't own a facility, but, um, I believe I could get it done if, if need be here in Massachusetts or elsewhere. Um, yeah. For somebody would, would love to cultivate that for you and connect gentlemen smugglers back to some of those original strains that you were sourcing. I think you're right. <laughs> they would love that. Well, I do want to get into, as you were kind of teeing up, obviously the variances between the legacy black market and then now operating the regulated market. But before that, I am curious to the extent that you want to share or talk about it. You just kind of alluded a little bit to your reputation had preceded you to the government and it was maybe almost a matter of time before they took action to kind of deal with it. From my understanding of your story and timeline, this was like you were operating and then got caught right around the war on drugs was getting implemented in the Controlled Substances Act and marijuana being placed on it. Did you ever get put in a room with Reagan? What was their sentiment to you? And maybe how long was the timeline for? Did you know it was coming because you were in that, you know, proliferation of it and you had a big reputation was it just any day now the feds are going to come find me or was it kind of a surprise what was that timeline like for them to actually narrow in and then once they got you what did they do did they sit you down were they like let's talk about this did they give you an opportunity to educate them obviously cannabis education was much more rudimentary back then as we've been discussing but I'm I'm just curious if the government was open-minded to having a conversation to understand, not to, you know, use the term criminal mastermind, but to to them, I would be like, oh, I want to learn from this guy. I want to understand how he did this. Was there any education from their part once they had you? Well, let me, this one comment that always uh, stands out in my mind, it was when the judge was sentencing me in a courtroom, a federal judge. He said that, in his opinion, that I was worse than a communist threat. Now, during the 80s, sure. we were in the Cold War. Reagan was continuing the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So when I heard that comment, I said, uh-oh, this is not going to be pretty. So that was the mindset of most of the government at yeah. the time. But this was something that had been put on Americans through a, a campaign of disinformation that started in the 30s and continued on and was something that the government felt like that they could really crack down and, and put a stop to it by bringing on a massive amount of money and agents and, and uh, let's go catch these bad guys. And so that kind of really started right after Jimmy Carter, because prior to Reagan, there was Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter and still loving to this day, he wanted to legalize marijuana and during his presidency, but he had a problem with it. His son 
caused him some problems. They were partying too hard at the White House, and some things got out in the press, and so he politically just could not go forward with it. And that ended that potential. A lot of people don't know this, yeah. but the potential pot cannabis to be legal back and during the Jimmy Carter era, which was in the late seventies, early eighties, that didn't happen. And when Reagan took over, he was a hardliner, you know, from California. He was one that had turned the national guard on some students at Berkeley, you know, back in the day. So he didn't, he wasn't um, playing around. And he decided somebody whispered in his ear, maybe it was Nancy. I don't know. Reagan. And, uh, just say no. Uh, and that started it and he got on the bandwagon. And so that enabled the, the government to, to garner all these forces to put a stop to mainly marijuana, uh, smuggling at the time, because it had proliferated quite a bit from when I started in the early seventies. Uh, in the eighties, it was going on. We weren't the only ones that were involved. Uh, and so I think that's what's kind of brought the whole cannabis business to kind of a somewhat of a halt by the middle eighties of smuggling and kind of died out because of the pressure that was applied. I mean, they had blimps in the air down in Florida. They had a lot more coast guard people looking. They had a, a, a much more aware of what was going on from the smuggling side. And so I think in some weird way, that pressure ended up, um, bringing on homegrown, you know, the, the, our, our folks that started in California and other places, um, taking it upon themselves They're like, hell, we can grow this. We don't have to wait for somebody to bring it to us. We can grow it. We can't get much of it anymore because when the pressure really was applied during the eighties, it did crimp, uh, in a big way supply. Um, uh, I was in prison, uh, imprisoned in 85. So I really wasn't privy to what was going on on the outside, but occasionally I'd hear, and it was always, man, it's really dry and nobody can get anything in conversations I would hear. That's one of the kind of quirky little things that, uh, the government didn't know that they were actually creating this, but in their zest to run us down and run everybody else down that was smuggling because Obviously, back then, like I said, that was the only way you could really get cannabis, whether it was muled across the Mexican border or brought in by boats like what we were doing or planes. And that was cut off and and pretty much died out. And I think that's brought us to where we are today, fortunately. That is a very interesting point that I do not think a lot of people know, certainly myself included. So I appreciate the insight into a little bit more of what was motivating some of those things, as well as what was inspiring some of the market that we have now uh, grown to see come to fruition. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here. And I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Uh, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. 
Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast. And let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. On the now like regulated side, I guess maybe to kind of jump in between a little bit. So you got out of prison. What was it like getting out? Did you fulfill your term? Did you appeal? Were they just like, cool, okay, you know, we're going to let him go now. And then at what point did you get out and you came back to cannabis? Well, I was out for a, a period of time. I didn't appeal my case. There wasn't any appeal in it. Uh, they had collected evidence and over a five or six year span. So, uh, most of the time when the federal government indicts you, they're very precise. They don't lose many cases. No, they don't. Uh, um, no, they, no don't. they don't. Um, they're very particular and they've got all their eyes and T's done and ready to go. What was the trigger that, you know, allowed you to get out? And then the second part was once you were out, how long did it take you? I guess you launched your brand last year. It took you some years to decide you wanted to get back in the industry. That's correct. Well, you've given a sentence. My statute, which was the kingpin statute, it carried 10 to life. So the judge could have given me life. I was really lucky. The judge that compared me to a communist, which back in the day was a terrorist. We have terrorists today. We don't really have a communist. You don't hear that term much. You hear terrorists a lot. He was actually a liberal judge. So he, I was sentenced to 18 years, but I had to do 11. I really would have done 12, but I got out a year ahead of time for good behavior. I don't know how that happened, but when I got out, you know, it it took me a while to get, you know, reoriented it, so to speak, because it was like, you know, you're in prison. You're really just like the walking dead. I mean, you're told when to go to sleep, when to wake up, when to eat, when to talk you know, when to walk and so forth and so on. It's something you had to get used to. And it took me quite a while to kind of get back in the groove of things. And I I had other projects in mind that I wanted to do. And, and I got into the restaurant business for a little while, the real estate business, development business. And then a book was written about us called Jackpot the name of the book by Jason Ryan in 2011, maybe, I believe is correct. And so that's kind of brought it all back to me again, because I did interviews with the writer and it kind of reopened, you know, my way of thinking. And then, you know, we were on the verge of being quasi-legal at that time. Yeah, I'm sure as the states are starting to open things up, it's like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. And so the thought came in my mind, but also a documentary was something that was brought to me before actually having a cannabis brand, a documentary about the gentleman smugglers. So I worked on that for some years. We're still working on it. We're in the process. I can't really talk about it right now, who working with, but uh, we're really close. It's very difficult having a film or documentary made. It's, it's a lot involved. But during that interim of talking about doing a documentary and working on it, uh, it was brought to my attention that, wow, why don't we do a cannabis brand in a legal state? We can completely control that. And so there we kind of back backdoored into the brand uh, through the documentary work That's that cool. we were doing. And that brought us to where we are today with the brand. It was kind of a, a roundabout way to get here, but it's, it's the way it is. Sometimes you don't know you start on, you start thinking about a and end up at C and, uh, I'm happy it happened because I wouldn't want to be waiting around on people in Hollywood to, to figure out what my destiny is, um, in my future. So, um, I do think a documentary will be made sometime soon. Um, the strike with the actors and the mm-hmm. writers didn't help us. That's just ending now, yes, I think. Dude, I saw uh, so things will be back on the, on the burner. Um, so what, that's kind of what brought me around to the brand. I worked on creating gentlemen smugglers brand for about two and a half years before it actually came to fruition in September of last year in Massachusetts. 
So it's really kind of taken off the brand and we can talk about that if you want to, or we can, I don't know if you have any more questions that you, you know, I kind of like having some guidance from you. You know, this is what you do. And I've listened to many of your podcasts as well. Thank you. Uh, Very enjoyable. Um, And so it's, it's, it's good to be here with you today. Everything you're saying, Barry, is very interesting, very informative. Again, I, I'm just grateful that people like you have existed, obviously, um, at different components of the industry, but like you really helped introduce a lot of what we now see, uh, maybe inadvertently because of the way that you got dealt with, with the federal government, uh, like you said, you know, kind of teeing up home grow. And then obviously here we are now and then the opportunity for you to one, tell your story. So thanks for telling it on the To Be Blunt podcast, but I'm really excited about this documentary. But where I want to, I guess, spend the rest of our time while we have you here is you mentioned Massachusetts being your choice for some reasons, but you didn't really go into those reasons. So I'm curious why Massachusetts, other than being a great state, I'm curious what Massachusetts offer for social equity, if that was any component of you choosing Massachusetts with their licensing or not. I'm just curious, obviously, given your history in some states, they are more accommodating towards that. Um, and then ultimately want to get into a little bit of the, the, the back and forth of, you know, pros and cons. Cause I'll say candidly, I had somebody in Texas not that long ago reach out to me and they see, you know, what I'm doing in hemp and they see what is happening in other states, adult use wise. And they're operating in the legacy or illicit market. And she was asking, well, should I get into the regulated market? And I was like, <laughs> candidly, no. I was like, you should keep doing what you're doing. And she's sophisticated. She's got, you know, delivery and a menu online and text through WhatsApp. And I was like, not that it's not easier or harder on the regulated side. There's also challenges. It's just, you know, which direction do you want to go? So I can understand why regulated is a better just from a I guess, criminal perspective, especially if that was part of your history, choosing like, well, I don't want to do that again. You know, I want to do things the the legal right way. But obviously doing it regulated, there still are clamps on um, certain states, certain programs, things like that. But, you know, the question to reiterate is uh, why Massachusetts? And then what about regulated versus legacy? What are some of those pros and cons? Well, to answer your first question about Mass, Massachusetts, um, we smuggled up and down the East Coast, all the way from Maine to Florida. We occasionally, just a few times, actually smuggled on the West Coast. Uh, We had a few shipments out of Thailand that we brought into the state of Washington uh, at the very end of our um, careers. Massachusetts is a liberal state always has been uh we smuggled into falmouth massachusetts on more than one occasion so we felt like we were coming back in a sense uh in massachusetts um when we first started looking at mass about a year and a half ago or so they were still in my opinion an emerging market and i don't know what is constitute a um a, a more of a long-term market but uh they were relatively new uh as far as legal goes and it just made sense to us because new york new jersey connecticut maryland all those other northeast states were not legal yet so mass was an east coast it was the closest we could really be on the east coast we felt like our story resonates a little bit more uh, on this side of the mississippi so we chose Mass, and I'm glad we did because people in Mass um, have been medical for a minute, and then obviously Rex since 2000, I believe, 17. And our initial conversations with folks in, in Massachusetts were really positive, and they really recognized my past and what gentlemen smugglers did to bring us to where we are today. So. The regulations in mass are 
pretty good. They're getting trying to get better on the social equity um, aspects of their regs. But it was fairly easy for us to get into Massachusetts. We bring a lot to the table yeah, uh, with, our, with my brand, with Puff Creative, great marketing team out of Denver, as you well know. How about John and uh, Katie and team? John and the, and the gang. We love them. And so we were encouraged to about mass as well through John and his team and, and, and it, and it worked out well. And, and I think we made the right decision. Obviously things have happened pretty quick in the Northeast now, you know, um, since we initiated our brand a year and a half ago and then launched a year ago, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Connecticut, uh, I don't Maine, you know, knew it. I don't, it everybody just about in the Northeast now is legal. Phil of uh, Pennsylvania will be coming on soon, uh, rec wise. So, uh, I think we've got a good foothold and that's what we kind of wanted to establish. I wasn't aware that everything was going to happen pretty quickly or as fast as it did in the Northeast. So I think we're positioned well being in mass and we've got other states that we will also be moving into here very shortly. I, I I'm not going to talk about them right now until the deal is done. Okay. But uh, one state's very close to you, not to make any, uh, ma- mention any names. I can but make some assumptions. See. I know what's surrounding you know, us. Dan, there, there's some aliens that, that hang around down yes. there. Uh, That's uh, a very exciting anyway, market. Like, it is. It's different. So um, yeah, mass was um, fairly easy from a, a regulatory look as well. And so it's it's worked out well. And we're really happy we, we got into mass. So we've been received with open arms. And when I first went to mass, I was like, oh, that's another Northeast state. They're going to run into a bunch of New Yorkers up here, you know, and, but I was totally wrong. Now, kudos to New York because yeah. I love New York to live in the city. So nothing, but in general, the people in mass reminded me so much of people down South. They're really friendly. And I was like, very surprised. And, and I'm, I'm still to this day, I haven't really met anybody that was, um, uh, it wasn't friendly. And uh, so the, all those things kind of combined uh, kind of led us to take mass on. We looked at other states as well. California is a very crowded yes, market. Colorado is very upside down. Yes, it is. Uh, and so I, we just felt like that was the right place at the right time. No, it makes sense given, like you said, the the legacy of your operation being in the Northeast and just the the timing of when you were looking to re-enter on the regulated side, what states were available. And obviously it's no doubt you have a great brand, a great story. So I anticipate seeing you absolutely, especially with the support of Puff Creative, you know, advancing into other markets and just continuing to tell the story. I guess Let's kind of, you know, maybe end on a couple of things. But one, what has been some of the lessons learned operating on the regulated side? Are there, because again, obviously we were talking about it earlier, you used to not have to test your products. Now you have to test your products. I'm sure back then, you know, I don't want to say you were selling in Ziploc baggies. You can correct me what you were selling in, but yeah, yeah. How does it smell? How does it taste? It's coming in, you know. Maybe a little paper bag, a plastic bag, whatever it was you're distributing in. Now you've got packaging, you've got labels. Uh, just kind of contrast that experience for us and what you're how in the regulated market. Exactly. Regulated means regulated. Yep. Uh, back in the good old days, the smuggling days, we'll call them, there wasn't any regulations. Yeah. The main thing that rests upon our shoulders was making sure we had a, a, a quality product. Believe me, I turned down a lot of product that I looked at and just had to say, no bueno. If I was in Colombia and Jamaica, it was like no man. Then we did our own quality uh, checks, so to speak. And there was there weren't any regulations. We were the regulators. Yeah, safety meetings. <laughs> safety meetings. I can't remember any safety meetings that I, I don't, I'm not sure we had any of those. Anyway, I'm sure you got plenty of water on board the boat. Oh yeah. Yes. That in a, in a med kit and that was our safety meeting. But so I think it's much more difficult to navigate when you have a lot of regulations that are really burdensome. 
So many of these regs are unnecessary, and I could go on on a litany of examples I'm not going to do, but it's overregulated. And I'm sure you know that, and through your conversations and your podcasts and your wisdom and knowledge of this business, that it's ridiculous. That being said, you still have to work through those regs. And it has caused problems. It has made things difficult. And there's many examples from stickers to labeling to testing to who can, how many people got a ride in the van when you're delivering. What do you, you got to have a, a armored car to deliver in um, and so forth and so on. Uh, I think it will get better over time. Obviously, I what I've encouraged people to do in this business is there's power in numbers. Anytime there's a meeting, as you well know, you were in DC recently, you know what it takes to make changes. And then when you come with numbers and when you come with a louder voice, then that has, it helps a lot to show up to these meetings, these regulatory meetings when um, they, they happen and they're all announced. Come with your friends, come with your co coworkers, come with people in the business, show up as a, as a group, as a number. And it's real hard for three or four people to deal with 40 or 50 folks in front of them going, no, no, no. To listen to this us. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Listen to what we're telling you. And I think that's going to happen more and more. And I hate to use the word lobbyist, but just for the sake of, 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 of the conversation, bring your, bring your friends with you at these regulatory meetings. And I've encouraged everyone to do that in mass. And I've been hearing some reports back that, you know, actually at the last meeting, they listened to us. We made some changes that we needed to make. And so I think when you do that, and when we're talking about the regs to make changes in them, because there's way too many, that's how to do it. There's nobody going to vote. We can't vote now yeah. because we have a committee, yeah. the committee side, everything, but there's still power with the people. Amen to that. And no, so I... I agree wholeheartedly to everything you said. And I think it's important to obviously have these conversations because a lot of people in the industry think that it's a very easy action to your point. Oh, we're just going to vote it in or, oh, this next governor, oh, this president's going to do it. Not that they can't do and use their executive order. And we're seeing that as the industry only grows in size and consumers grow in size, that they are listening to us. They are taking what we're saying seriously. But it is a dance. This is my second time in D.C. And it was just a year apart. So going a year ago, the conversations were a little bit more, you know, okay, whatever, you know, you got to say. And then this time we felt that they were more receptive, more listening. I don't know if that's because the farm bill is actually being worked on presently. So they feel more like they have to pay attention to what we're saying. But I think it's just a good reinforcement of using your voice. And like you said, you know, show up, be active, be involved. And I think it's exciting. I know it hurts a lot of people, especially, I mean, you talked about Colorado just being upside down and that being one of those first rec markets. The way that the industry looks today is not going to be the way, the way the industry looks in three years, five, six, 10 years. And I think that people need to be flexible. I see a lot of people being very rigid even if the laws or the regulations suck, they feel like that's their, you know, their battle scar. It's like, oh, well, I weathered through this. And so we don't want things to change because if they change, it might hurt or impact their business. And so I have empathy for the people at all stages of the industry. But I think it's also very exciting because the industry is so new and we have a lot of opportunity to bring new consumers into the marketplace, develop a more robust offering of products and see where this economy can go and impact, you know, the overall state of things. So it is, it's, you know, it's hard work, but it's fun work. When you get tired and you get finished with your podcast life, I want you to come work with gentlemen smugglers. <laughs> you got it, Barry. I love it. I would love that. No, sincerely. You're really very, very knowledgeable. Oh, and um, we need more folks like you in, in the business, um, spreading the word and, and educating people and, um, I really appreciate what you do. Really, I appreciate oh. you from the bottom of my heart. I mean, this has been a really great conversation and I truthfully look forward to more conversations. I know my listeners really appreciate the transparency that you shared. Again, thank you for what you've done and for 
you know, I feel like when you say serving, it obviously is a different meaning for you. You served some hard time, but um, I hope that it, you know, wasn't in vain and and you've been able to obviously learn from that experience and now bring it back full circle with your brand and and just onwards and upwards, right? So thanks again for joining me, Barry, and being on the To Be Blunt podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, uh, in closing, I'll say, I hope to meet you in person soon. I look forward to that day. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.